Welcome to Native Calgarian. Native Calgarian is being recorded on the Blackfoot Territory, uh, Treaty 7 in 1877. So this land has been the Blackfoot Confederacy for thousands of years. Um, the U.S.-Canadian colonial border just went right in between it, splitting up the Blackfeet Nation south in the U.S. And in the north, we have in Canada, Bagani Sikka Ghanai Nations. And then in 1877, Sutina, as well as uh, the Stony Nakoda is now the Wesley Chiniki Bearspaw Nations, joined up. And now we also have Métis, who are a huge component of making Calgary. Uh, Calgary is called Mokinstis in Blackfoot, and in Satudene, Klinchotene uh, Indahe. So I'm really honored today. I should introduce myself. Oki Mekwachis Chestokom Aki. My apologies to any Blackfoot language keepers. My name is Michelle Robinson. Uh, my spirit name is Red Thunder Woman. I'm honored to be sitting here today with my friend as well as colleague, Spirit. And Spirit, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, my name is Spirit Reverse uh, Striped Wolf. My Blackfoot name is Ima Oyeomaka, which describes an enduring running wolf. Mm. And I come from the Bigani First Nation. Oh, I'm really honored to have you on my show. I've uh, been super excited about this uh, particular conversation because... We've been working together actually pretty closely for the last couple of years now mm-hmm. with voices. And you ha- I feel like you have so much political experience, but also, you know, you're so open and honest about so many different issues. And, you know, so I just would love to talk to you about uh, an, any broad range of conversations that end up coming out of this. But I really wanted to make sure that I did extensive bragging um, <laughs> about the great work that we've been doing together yeah. with Voices, uh, particularly your work of trying to decolonize the nonprofit framework that is currently existing. And, um, you know, looking at it because we are a group of people that are trying to decolonize as well as, you know, be inclusive to all people. I just really loved the approach that you took to our organization and trying to structure it in a way that uh, to go from grassroots rather than going straight into uh, corporate or, I guess, colonial nonprofit structure. Instead, you came on board and really looked at our systems and our procedures and, and such and went, okay, how do we decolonize this from the typical nonprofit model? And do you want to maybe talk about how that experience was for you? Yeah, it was really interesting. So, like, I guess my original idea was to try to find a way where, you know, it didn't have, um, I guess, a hierarchy. Um, trying to make it into a way that didn't make power uh, a finite kind of zero-sum uh, thing, but rather something that um, power that can be shared amongst people um, and trying to allow people to find their own way to uh, realize their own power within the organization. And um, a big part of that has been for me, like I'm, you know, I'm still new to the city, so I'm definitely still trying to learn like different perspectives. And so it's been a big experience for me as well to be able to um learn about accessibility and to learn about the needs of different people. And I think that's also a big aspect of decolonizing, Um, but also like recognizing that, you know, voting doesn't always have to be uh, 
into a very aggressive political thing, um, that it can be something where people can, you know, talk and uh, think of alternative ways of um, of uh, interpreting a certain, like a decision. Like one thing I really liked being able to work with Evans and also learning from my own reserve is like the Blackfoot style of, you know, decision making, which is where um, people go around the room and they try and, you know, everyone has that opportunity to uh, share how they feel about it. Of course, we can't always use that system, but it's also just really good to have an environment where, you know, people can suggest like, hey, let's try this and not be like, no, well, actually, Robert's rule says this. So I don't <laughs> I don't think so. That's not by the book. Point of order. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but being able to say like, hmm, I don't know if this process is working for me. And I think that's what I want to see. I want to see it where people can feel um, empowered to be able to say what works for them and what doesn't, especially with people of color that don't usually have that opportunity to, where in a lot of circumstances, people of color will say, where something has uh has wronged them but then they don't have that they either don't have that power to speak up about it or if they do they um fear you know running into things like white fragility or running into things of like that's not you know that's not how we do things here but to be able to try and see what works for people what works for us especially as a group of people that have struggled with trauma Mm. and has has struggled with you know, trust issues with the system within our own people because of systemic racism and systemic trauma and intergenerational trauma, how we need to look at organization differently. We need to look at it in a way that allows people to speak and to have that oper- have the tools available to them to be able to say where they think trust is being broken down. Mm. whereas i don't think a lot of organizations think about trust in that way where you know it's really important for me to be able to say hey michelle you know like we talked about this at a board meeting about boundaries and i need to talk about my boundaries and where i think Mm. um you know either you or someone else overstepped it but to have that language and where everyone's on board about it Mm -hmm. um and i think you know i see that in a lot of other organizations too with like accountability guidelines I think that, you know, that's really, it's really good. It's good to have those kind of things and have it out in the open and say, hey, we agreed to this. So it's not a big surprise if I say that, you know, we need to talk about integrity or we need to talk about things um, that might affect trust. Mm -hmm. Well, I think in Voices especially, and maybe we should do a quick intro what Voices is. Um, Voices is the uh, queer people of color indigenous two-spirit of Calgary that have found there's to be a lot of exclusion from the LGBTQ2 plus community in general. And um, really came out of the Black Lives Matter uh, Toronto issue where we had a, um, a local Calgarian speak about the exclusion issues that were happening. And then you know, some community meetings happened, which I, I know I was a part of the original ones. Um, and for myself, because I'm a part of the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls Committee, I just found there to be such an exclusion when there came to be two spirit issues. And of course, that's a huge problem, a huge gap. Uh, maybe I'll talk more about that later. I don't mean to take from that. And then um, on top of that, we just wanted to make sure that uh, 
you know, allyship is such a difficult word to, um, I guess, put into action, but also have boundaries, procedures when it comes to. And I think a great example is a cis straight woman. Uh, you know, what does ally look like for me? But then also for our, you know, our rainbow community, what does that look like for the rainbow community when it comes to white fragility, white privilege, uh, colonial privilege, those types of things. So I think that, you know, I, I really hope that there's an understanding why this needed to be so dissected the way that we we set it up, specifically your work with, um, you know, different ways to decolonize the process so that that way there are processes to say, hey, mm-hmm. um, we're calling you in in a good way. Here's a teaching that goes along with yeah. why what you said was problematic and that understanding that people need to be open to that. Yeah, it's hard though with like, you know, it's something that I I hope to be able to have more conversations about about when you're calling in other people of color, I think it's really tough, especially um when I think there's a lot of uh trauma, especially for I can mostly only speak for indigenous people, but mm. I think indigenous people some of the trauma that we carry is um, you know, I think not dealing with uh social um conflicts in healthy ways mm. uh because of the trauma, because of uh what what has kind of been imprinted upon us i think that it's uh it's hard when you like you don't want to push people of color away from the activist scene Mm -mm. um and i think you know i still have a lot to think about it but definitely how we approach those calling in maneuvers i feel like we have to have a different conversation with how we do that with people of color absolutely um because we need more people of color in this fight and we need more people of color, you know, speaking for themselves and finding that power within themselves to be able to, um, you know, to be able to help change the system. You know, mm-hmm. it has to be, it has to go away from just it being white people doing that and more people of color doing that and more people of color, especially LGBT people of color, um, you know, speaking for themselves. And, you know, it's, like we were just talking with an elder not too long ago about like how um it's you know it's still pretty hard on the reserve for people to come out uh to come out as um lgbt on the reserve and in our indigenous communities and um and when they do like it needs to be more accessible for them to be in this uh activist environment with us Mm. um I think it's so important to hold accountable, you know, bad behavior. Mm-hmm. But yeah, a lot of my research kind of looks into how indigenous people, um, you know, it's not as simple as saying you need to change your behavior where we have a lot of trauma that we don't want to trigger in others. Mm-hmm. And um, I think anything that says you're wrong Mm-hmm. might look different from a white privileged person that has that has no trauma and has a good relationship with themselves they might respond to that hey you did something wrong differently they might say and i've known a lot of white folks that say yes let like let me let me listen to you let me see what i need to change mm-hmm. um there's a lot of allies in the community that are white that i know do a good job about that mm-hmm. um 
but I think for a lot of not just in only indigenous people for anyone that has that has had trauma I think it you know it's harder for them and it's I think it they interpret it differently um I think they interpret it in a way that says you know instead of oh I have to change my behavior it's like oh you just said I was a bad person right and so it's very you know the language, English language, maybe it's English, maybe it's just how humans are. It's hard. Those are very intricate, nuanced things in those ways of calling in people and to make it say that, no, you're actually a really good person. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, what you did was, you know, anti-black or what you did was transphobic. And we just, it's a, it's a learning, invi- it's a learning thing. Mm-hmm. We were recently at a, um, activist uh, group um, where we made bath bombs and I'll only share my story which is you know I said that like for me being in those spaces um, I used to feel a lot of shame and a lot of like you know like I wanted to look good or I wanted to at least look acceptable to other activists like I not to be inside a club or something but like I wanted to be doing the, the work properly in mm. the eyes of other people um, and other the eyes of other activists, but then I realized that, you know, I'm always gonna mess up. I'm always gonna step in it, oh, and like that's probably not a good thing, but it's something that is necessary if I'm going to restructure how I am as a person, how I engage with uh, black people, how I engage with um, trans people. Um, that I need to be able to learn from that and not push myself further away, further away when I make those mistakes. Mm. So I really like it when, you know, you know, even with voices where we've had this conversation that, um, the space and the meetings have to be, have to prioritize the idea that it's a learning environment and Mm. let's avoid those mistakes. But at the same time, it's okay if you make those mistakes. It doesn't mean you're a bad person. It just means you have to change. You guys have to do some change for your own behavior. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Well, we talk a lot about problematic language. So I think that's kind of the base of it, right? um, I love so many things you're talking about. Mm -hmm. I was there for that uh, bath bomb making session. And, you know, um, I was reflecting how that literally is the very first time I ever talked about uh, with other peers, other colleagues, what it feels like to be teaching, you know, non-Indigenous, well, I guess uh, white settler folks, what it's like to be teaching them, how emotionally exhausting it is, but how validating it was from hearing everybody around the table, knowing that I'm not alone in these feelings that I'm having. And then when I thought about how, I've I've met uh, one elder particularly who has been so kind to me, and he said that uh, during the AIM time, they just didn't even have the language because they were still really transitioning from um, into English and not really understanding the entire language. Mm-hmm. So they knew what was happening to them was wrong, but they couldn't articulate it. And now here we are where we're like not just articulating it, but we're dissecting it, making it structure, making it policy. Uh, working together so that um, we're empowered and using the tools of colonialism to empower us as well as the people. um, Well, and I would argue too, a lot of the 
folks who are people of color come from colonized countries when they come to our place. So it's in a lot of ways, we have a lot of similarities in colonial trauma. It's just that some, of course, it looks slightly different um, depending who who it is when when they came yeah. those those ideas how they came you know mm-hmm. as opposed to immigrating a refugee you know those conversations as well mm-hmm. so i uh i really appreciate everything that you're saying here and i'm just really grateful that we've had so many you know different experiences that we can kind of dissect and talk mm-hmm. about that in in a good way and uh my hope is i know uh uh community wise is doing all of this anti-racism work and i just really hope that we can continue to um build that community yeah because i think uh you know i've seen an article recently talking about community care but today at the event that we were at with alwatan's um summary that they were giving out for a report you know it was talked about the idea of vigils that literally is our community care you know, mm. people making a bunch of bannock for everybody is yeah. community care. And I really got that impression that we just, as people of color, as Indigenous folk, we need to come together and do more of that community care. And I would argue just have, like, p- safer spaces for people of color so that we yeah. don't have to explain ourselves and we just understand each other where we're coming yeah. from. Yeah, I uh, uh, read some research about it's called empowerment theory, and it's very much what you're talking about, and very much similar to the um to the self care event we went to, uh, where it, the empowerment theory is a social work um, I guess, academic theory, and it talks about like how when you get people into a room and into like a group dynamic, where they find the common like culture they belong to so i think the paper was written looking at latino groups and in the states and having them kind of come into a room and like say yeah we're we're we we identify with this uh with this um ethnocultural identity um and so a part of the process was to look at obstacles they face together what are some common barriers they experience within society and just amongst themselves they were you know encouraged to have that conversation Mm. Um, and it was, it was a way of building something called critical consciousness Mm. where you, you, you know, to be critical about something is to look at it from different angles. Mm -hmm. So it was developing critical awareness or critical consciousness of your position in this, in this world or in this society, Mm -hmm. um, and how people would get empowered by that and say hey i'm not alone that ex that experiences this i just heard you say that in your uh story and how you know for a lot of people of color that's so important to be able to say like oh like i'm not the only one that struggles with you know landlord bullcrap or i'm not the only one that you know struggles with shame and uncomfortable emotions with confrontation or with um you know, or when I have to talk to someone about white fragility and how I feel after that experience, mm. um, to have those conversations, say I'm not alone, mm-hmm. and then the end is supposed to be, um, they say they call it activism uh, articulation or something, where you think about as a group what solutions you can come up with mm. based on that, and from the research they said that 
the individuals afterwards would feel so empowered and they would have this mindset to create change in their society. They said that they're not sure if that that aspect was sustainable and long lasting, mm-hmm. but they said um, that they definitely felt empowered. And I think that definitely if you like have an increased sense of that, okay, some of these issues I go through are not just my own, that other people experience this. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, it can definitely be healing. Mm-hmm. It can definitely be enlightening. And yeah. I think it can definitely help you while you either continue to do the kind of work you do, whether that's anti-racism or whether that's, you know, just living your life as a person of color and having to experience racism and say, like, yeah, this is shitty, but, you know, like, there's more people in this fight with me. Yeah. Or whatever it is, um, that you just don't have that sense of isolation and that sense of shame and that... um, and things like that. I think that's something that's really helped me is to kind of realize that like people step in it all the time. People make mistakes. Mm. And the wrong thing would be to withdraw and instead of being accountable to myself, blame others. Mm. Um, but to try and figure out how I can change and how I can, uh, you know, change my behavior and make things a little bit more safer for people. Mm. Um, and I think just, you know, saying, oh, that was a tag, that was you telling me I was a bad person, mm. and then withdrawing. I think that's, it's just, it doesn't change anything. Nothing mm-hmm. was changed. The behavior isn't changed. Mm-hmm. There's just more hurt feelings. Yep. But, yeah. Incredible. Mm-hmm. No, I appreciate you sharing that. Um, I was, uh, just not to go completely off topic, but um, I was talking to a friend about dog medicine, mm. and uh I really appreciated that because uh, I, I've always surrounded myself with dogs <laughs> and right now we're just petting our puppies yeah. and I was worried about their, you know, what's going on in their world and we went on a vacation recently and had our dogs mm. and just so grateful for my puppies. They just keep me, mm. it's just that natural law around you. They yeah. kind of keep you in check too. And oh, that's a good point. Yeah. So I, I love having them around and um, I was grateful that we could start today with a smudge and we had a, one of our elders here and yeah. who did a, a wonderful prayer. Yeah. I'm really yeah, grateful. that often. It was very nice. Right? Yeah. I And especially if I had a, a session today where we talked about, um, you know, violence against women and girls. And we had uh, uh, Tina Keeper came to Calgary and was showing one of the films that she had produced and uh, it was based off a jo- Joseph Boyden's book, um, Black Spruce, or Through Black Spruce. And it, it's really an incredible movie. I absolutely think it, it, it really showcases a family struggle through uh, one of their, in their, this family structure dynamic uh, was a niece mm. that went missing in Toronto. And uh, just the whole conversation about that. And then having Tina there so that she could actually talk about parts and we could ask questions and there's a bear in there. So I asked questions about the bear, but it was a really heavy, heavy movie. Mm -hmm. And then of course the conversation about um, empowerment kind of rooted back to the summary that Aoutan was doing because they're the very first 
uh, indigenous shelter to do this like self-reflection mm. and giving that report. That report's due in a month, so I highly recommend everybody go look for it, and it'll be really relevant mm. considering on Monday is when the um, National Inquiry is going to be releasing their report. I'm getting texts and emails right now that it's already been leaked to the media and the family's finding out through the media, which is its own trauma. Oh, jeez. Yeah. So today's been a really heavy day, so I can't even tell you how grateful I was to have yeah. our uh, yeah. have our elder with us and, yeah. um, you know, do that smudge with her here and, yeah. um, and, and then to be able to talk about, you know, um, basically how colonial structures are in their own way, <laughs> uh, like a violence towards yeah. us and trying to, you know, um, change the system so that that way mm-hmm. there's a, a healthier way of being able to communicate, being able to solve issues, being able to do governance. Um, Yeah, I think the biggest thing about being with Voices and having this conversation with you is just learning how colonized we are in so many ways of our thinking, but how breaking away from that helps us heal and helps Mm. us move forward in a better, better way. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Did you want to share that book at all? Yeah. Um, Yeah, I was trying to think of what i could talk about uh with you i know i could just talk about anything and yeah. just going for hours but <laughs> um yeah something that i'm uh i think is really relevant to a lot of issues like missing murder indigenous uh women and girls um is just kind of looking at trauma within indigenous communities uh something that i've been working on for the last three years now um has been uh this greater project it's called Odapiaki. i named it in 2016 um that was around the time i started university uh i work with uh, my co-founder um patty may derbyshire uh she's a professor over at mount royal university i'm a student uh, and associate researcher there um and we created this project called Odapiaki that is a, a social innovation project that's meant to help support indigenous creative entrepreneurs and trying to give them um, that ability to connect with one another uh, and the ability to showcase their work and to give them a platform. Um, And it's incredible work. Uh, I'm an author. I write uh, stories and things like that, and I hope to do that in the future. So I'm not really like a fashion person, um, but I am a creative. And it's just been incredible to me and other written artists, other uh, musicians, and fashion designers, and all these creative people. Um, And what I was tasked with was to look at some of the barriers that Indigenous entrepreneurs experience Mm. um, within society. Uh, So how can a project like Wadapiaki best uh, impact the community, the Indigenous Mm. community? Um, And... So there was, uh, so my kind of research um, initiative that I took on was the economic development aspect of it. Mm. So I read a um, paper, it was a background methods paper by the Aboriginal Economic Development Board, I think it was called. Um, And they had this uh, economist group called Fiscal Realities Economists Mm. to do this uh, analysis of Indigenous people um, to see, like, what are indigenous people, like, 
how how are they connected to the um employment uh to the labor force and uh like what are the numbers and how much is in our indigenous people contributing to the to the uh to the gdp and to things like this um and what i found was pretty incredible it found that indigenous people for the most part are um that there's very large economic gaps between indigenous people and non-indigenous people mm-hmm. uh, there's a missing 27.7 billion dollars in the gdp just from underutilized indigenous from the underutilized indigenous workforce mm. um for people that are unemployed or people that are dependent on the welfare state um people that once they go into university they tend to drop out um or high school that mm. the rates and the gaps between high school and university completion is just it's i think about 11 to 20% of a gap between indigenous and non-indigenous people so i went into this project kind of looking at what could we do what how could it, something like odapiaki or what can you know other than government i suppose what uh are the barriers and what can um groups like odapiaki do to help this uh help indigenous people succeed mm-hmm. um and so in the report it talks about how there's the gaps and it says in order to close these gaps it suggests that if indigenous people had the same um opportunities mm-hmm. as non-indigenous people then those gaps would close um and I was like okay that makes sense i suppose and it said how it didn't consider racist or social and cultural differences between <laughs> uh what that might be causes sure. and i was like hey well racism is a huge cause <laughs> like you can't just i mean you can't just offer these you know tools and i find that something that you see on reserves a lot is that you know people say oh here's some business training like let me just give you this training and or let me just throw money at you to go to university or to go and do like you know to go and join the um firefighters or something mm-hmm. um but what we find is those things tend to not be very sustainable of course either they tend to end up you know if they take the training it usually doesn't either go that far um because they don't have those networks and they don't have that ability to kind of escape perpetual poverty mm-hmm. that uh being on the reserve and being under the welfare system kind of perpetuates um and and so there's those obstacles and i realized that a big aspect to that through my own research was that trauma is one of the biggest issues that really disempowers indigenous people mm. and that trauma and some of the affects of it that we don't really consider like how trauma really disrupts the ability to create um social networks and organizations um and successful like factories or something a lot of factories on reserves tend to go under mm-hmm. um and i found this i figured this uh, i kind of went down this path about trauma and networks and uh and social connection uh through doing a comparative analysis between indigenous people and uh UK ethno uh cultural minority groups in the UK mm. and trying to compare like because if you look at the folks the ethno cultural minority groups in the UK they actually um they actually add to the GDP by a lot i think it was 15 like 
billion dollars or something like that to the to the overall UK economy. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I thought that was really incredible. So if we look at Indigenous people as a minority group, what are we doing wrong, mm-hmm. or what is what are the barriers there? Mm-hmm. Um, if you know if our issue is that we don't have the same opportunities as Canadians. So, like, the UK ethno-cultural minority groups also don't have those same opportunities as, you know, white UK Mm -hmm. uh, people. So how do they cope with that exclusion from the labor market? Mm. Um, And what they do, what they use, is their ability to connect with each other. Mm. They call it social capital. I've heard uh, New Zealand is actually starting to Mm. change their economic model to include social capital. Interesting. And uh, yeah, that's something that I think is incredible. Like we talk about uh, socioeconomic barriers for Indigenous, but I mean, in general, uh, women in in, um, Canada obviously face those issues and such. And, Mm. um, you know, at the expense of being partisan. I uh, was really proud of the Liberal government for putting a gender plus equity um, uh, budget out there. Yeah. And then Rachel Notley had done the same thing, actually. Yeah. So it, it not just acknowledged that there's a gender gap, but it also acknowledged that there's a huge disparity for people of color. Yeah. And uh, to me, that is incredible, because if we don't start acknowledging social capital and, and social gaps that are causing you know, if we we won't even name racism in Canada, because mm-hmm. um, we have a real tendency to go, we're better than the states. When I've met Americans who are like, "Oh, you guys are racist up there." Yeah. For an American just to call us racist shows the, you know, um, problems that we're having in Canada, mm-hmm. and the fact that we have, you know, the National Inquiry is about to release on Monday their um, final report. I don't know if anybody read their preliminary report, but, you know, at the end of the day, we have uh, gender racist-based violence. And um, it's just unacknowledged because people don't want to even acknowledge racism. So, you know, put that towards that economic sense. Look at that uh, GDP that we're missing and that we're not uh, being allowed to access. Um, Under the Indian Act, I just seen a really great conversation that happened on uh, power and politics i think it was mm-hmm. with uh steve Pal- palkin okay. yeah uh, but he actually had russ Ivo and actually all indigenous speakers on there mm-hmm. talking and dissecting the indian act and yeah. it was brought up the uh barriers the indian act have always um, had for um economic development for indigenous people yeah. and the concepts that were related to that to get them off of the reserve that uh, assimilation genocide, that cultural genocide, and economic um, mm-hmm. assimilation. That's basically what they were trying to get to. So um, I think the work you're doing is so incredible yeah. to kind of name that and yeah. put that together in an academic sense because we can't solve a problem that we won't even acknowledge. If we won't name racism, we won't name uh, social mm-hmm. capital, like we're not, we're not going to be yeah. able to fix these socioeconomic uh, gaps. Yeah, and it's just really interesting, like, uh, what, I think it was, I can't remember the author that, um, we're talking about Francis Fukuyama, who's a political scientist, he wrote a book about trust, um, and he defined social capital as, I think, the ability for um, cooperation in groups and in organizations to mm-hmm. be able to, I guess, maximize their um their outcome or their capability Mm. Um, and how for indigenous people, it's really, really hard to be able to develop those kind of groups when there is uh, 
you were talking about like how you know intergenerational trauma or the residential schools um and how that assimilation process worked um how trust has really become disrupted within indigenous communities mm. as part of that process mm-hmm. um and how you know so you look at the uk ethno cultural groups minority groups and they because they have the same language they have the same cultural norms um they are able to connect with each other uh a bit strong a bit more stronger um they say kind of this idea of like you know we're in this very white prominent society let me hire you for my whatever it is it could be like a taxi service or it could be you know a restaurant or something like that or my or a convenience store like I'll hire my own kind of idea. Mm-hmm. And how for indigenous people, um, that's a bit harder for us to do when trust in all four levels are kind of disrupted. Um, Stephen Thibodeau and Faye Northpig, and they wrote this paper about trust disrupted in uh, First Nation communities at the individual level at the family and clan level, mm. at the community level, and at the like outsider government and foreigner level. Mm. And how it's really hard for indigenous people to um engage in those uh in those kind of ways. And it, they talk about how a lot of that trust stemmed from uh residential school and mm. um, you know, things like the sixty scoop and mm-hmm. um just having all of these like as part of cultural genocide, the psychological violence um, brought on to indigenous people is that you're you're not good enough. That mm-hmm. you know you're not white, so you'll learn English, but you'll never be as good as a white person. Mm-hmm. And that you could, you know, that the part of the indigenous thing is to try to become more and more white, mm-hmm. um, rather than seeing the value in our own culture and language so i always say like we have to be you know quite naive to think that all these years of being told you're not good enough you're not beautiful enough smart enough Mm. um intelligent enough your culture is no good we have to be pretty naive to think that that didn't mess up our psychology in some way absolutely right and i think that you know, we always look at like the trauma or trying to give business training and we don't see how those two things really connect with each other. And that if I can't trust myself, how could you expect me to take risks and mm. to do well in school and to push my, um, to be able to engage in courage and to, you know, write a bomb ass paper when <laughs> I fundamentally inside, I think that I'm no good. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, it talks about like how a lot of trust, you know, broke down in the family and how, you know, this one quote just like really, um, really affected me. And it was talking about like how when other participants had said, you know, um, you know, like for the family, for the trust in the family, you have your father who will say, I'm not going to beat up your, your mom anymore. I promise. Like, that's it. I'm not going to beat up your mom anymore. And then he does it anyways Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. and how that trust has just continued to be um broken Mm. um so my research has been to look at like what is that so okay so trust is kind of a fundamental aspect to it um what so if a trauma was the thing that disrupted the if trauma was the thing that disrupted the trust in indigenous communities 
um, can we name that trauma? Mm-hmm. Uh, can we, is there any way we can, like, other than just having, like, math psychologists in indigenous communities, which can be problematic in certain ways as well, or social workers, you know, with the background of and history that we have with social workers, like, what is it that we're doing that we're in this cycle of just violence that didn't stem from our own cultures. Our cultures were very much based on interdependency onto the community mm-hmm. and values that told you about the community and like, you know, consider the collective before the individual. Mm-hmm. Like these are Blackfoot values that I grew up learning about. Um, you know, so it's not our culture inherently. It's not indigenous inherently mm-hmm. to have this distrust. So what is it that we're doing that's perpetuating this intergenerational continuity of distrust in our communities? Mm-hmm. Um, and one thing that I came to realize and that I kind of found in my research by talking to other people and also like just reflecting on my own experience um, there's a few times where I wanted to drop out of university and, you know, where my own traumas were kind of getting in the way. Mm. So having my own personal experience, talking to other people, um, one thing that kept showing up continuously throughout my research was this concept of shame. Mm. So you asked what the books were that I brought, and one of them is called Shame and Guilt by June Price Tangney and Rhonda Deering. Um, and I think they're in social work or in psychology, uh, professor of psychology. And so they go into how, how people are either shame prone or guilt prone and how shame and guilt are actually very two different emotions. Mm. Um, and it talks about how, um, basically in a nutshell, this is how guilt is a reflection of behavior and shame is a reflection of self. Mm. So it talks about like how it's the difference between saying like guilt is I made a mistake, shame is I am the mistake. Right. And how that is the trauma. This idea of like I am the mistake. Mm. Um, And how that comes into humans as adults uh, from early childhood. And in stems from a lot of different factors um but one factor is how parents discipline their children Mm -hmm. um this idea that you know um i was telling you before like this difference between saying like you know you're a bad girl or which is very shaming language or using teasing um messaging or love withdrawal or conditional approval Mm -hmm. in order to get you know your child to change um and then there's the other way of saying, hey, you're actually a really good girl, but what you did was not good. Mm. And reflecting on the behavior and seeing the cons and helping the child realize the consequences of their behavior. Mm-hmm. It takes away that idea of reflection of self and onto the behavior. Mm. Whereas if it's a reflection of self and a reflection of your inherent worth as a human being, mm-hmm. that's a very painful experience to go through mm. to say of every social transgression you experience mm-hmm. will reflect back to your self-worth like that's a living hell and yeah. so i always say how indigenous people are in pain and there's a lot of research that says in this book and elsewhere as well it says shame is highly highly correlated to addictions suicidality Mm. uh they say that the core of domestic violence Mm. is shame shame Mm. proneness 
that shame proneness, this idea that every time you think, oh, I'm unworthy or I'm not good enough, um, I'm not smart enough, whatever, it goes, it directly influences how you view yourself and your overall general evaluation of yourself, so your self-esteem. Mm. Um, and how it just creates this environment where you just keep thinking, like, you're not good enough, all these different kind of things. It also is very highly correlated to addiction. And, you know, these different things that it was correlated with, I just seen them in my own communities. Like Absolutely. When I came, when I went yeah. into my degree, I was like, I want to find out what's going on with Indigenous people. I want to look into these really, um, you know, these things I grew up around. I was in my youth, I was elected my youth chief and council. And I went into these Indigenous people's homes and my neighbors' homes. Mm. And yeah, the housing is horrible there. But then you also see how they are to them to each other like it's a lot of you know like oh you're such a stupid kid or why'd you do that mm. like you should know better mm. and like i experienced a lot of that myself growing up and um you know and seeing all my cousins experience that from their own parents and like that's not inherent to us that's not inherent as part of our culture that comes from the nuns and the priests a hundred percent and i'm i'm just going to jump yeah, in and say sure. i absolutely experienced that as well yeah. um my entire childhood, even though, um, you know, I wasn't with my indigenous community, mm -hmm. I knew I was indigenous. And the messages I got from both society and my family mm -hmm. was that, oh, that's the indigenous side of you. Mm -hmm. It always the assumption that that's somehow inferior, lesser than, um, you know, that inherently I'm an inferior being yeah. by just simply being, by just yeah. simply existing. And it was interesting because my mom, she's never said, because I know I was an accident mm -hmm. and I know they got married based off the fact that she got pregnant with me. Yeah. But she said when my father proposed, it wasn't something ever out of shame. So it's interesting because in so many ways, like she wanted me, she wanted to be married. It wasn't uh I'm forced into marriage because I got pregnant or anything like that. But yet the language that I heard from my father and from society was that as an indigenous person, you are, you know, more prone to addiction and yeah. inferior uh, in intelligence and inferior in relationships. And you're more likely to X, Y, and Z. And, yeah. and that I think is that root of that guilt and that shame that you're talking about. But on top of it, when I am around a lot of my family, I will hear those exact words that you said, like, oh, I thought you would know better, yeah. um, insinuating yeah. that you should know better, yeah. that that was dumb, you know, and you yeah. don't even need to hear that you're stupid. You yeah. just already feel that. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. It's a part of our culture. Mm -hmm. Like, it's a cultural thing. And it was so mind-blowing for me to, like, you know, grow up with some of my elders that have worked really hard to try to, um, you know, bring in some of these things. Like, I went to uh, to the school on my reserve, and, you know, there's a Blackfoot class there, and I had my Blackfoot um, teachers there. Uh, one of them, Jeannie Smith-Davis, who's, like, because of her, I don't think I would be here today. She's just an amazing teacher. Um, and, you know... I think we all need those really important teachers in our lives, mm -hmm. right? And she definitely taught me about, like, Blackfoot value systems and how, you know, if you look at it, if you look at before colonization, indigenous people were 
very, very, they were smart. They were innovative. You know, like, you know, the Buffalo jump in itself is just an amazing, intuitive uh, thing. Like, in this environment where we couldn't develop like Europeans because you can't domesticate buffaloes, you can't domesticate the animals in this area, that we had to adapt to this environment. Mm -hmm. And the fact that, you know, like so far they say we've been here, like from what they've been able to find through archaeology that we've been here for over 15,000 years. And, you know, our elders, of course, say that we've been here even longer, mm -hmm. that we have been in this territory, in this very harsh territory, that when Europeans came here, they could not survive in this territory. Mm -hmm. they, needed, they needed the assistance of First Nations people. That I can't, I would, I would, I, when I came into this research, I said I would not believe the idea that this is just how inherently how indigenous people are. Mm -hmm. That we are, you know, prone to addiction that we are prone to oh. <laughs> these kind of things. Yeah. Like, I just knew, I was like, humans are just not like that. Um, there has to be something, there has to be something greater. There has to be something that is a root cause to this. And I think, you know, in this time period, we have the puzzle pieces, mm -hmm. but it's about trying to put them together and saying, what, what fits and, like, what is the root of this? And, mm -hmm. you know, we have a lot of research done, like this book about the shame and guilt and, you know, it's just another puzzle piece, right? I find About, a lot of the Jewish community mm -hmm. through the Holocaust, I find that their language actually helps me articulate a lot of that intergenerational trauma mm -hmm. as well. I think, again, back to the AIM elder, mm -hmm. finding the words, and you found the words. And now, like, I know for me, empowerment, resiliency, the, I don't love the words, but those feelings were something that I felt when I started to unpack and understand the bigger gravity of colonialism. Yep. And I just wanted to point out what you were saying about, you know, living here for thousands of years. Um, I just did a land acknowledgement um, teaching. It's about an hour long. And I, at the very end, have uh, Reg Crochu talking from the UFC. It's a public uh, video to show people. And the first thing he talks about is natural law. Mm. And... I just, that's such a colonial concept is that, you know, you can somehow uh, control the land, control the animals and not follow natural law, mm -hmm. just go into unnatural law. And here we are today um, with so much smoke in the skies that it's actually off the charts. It's 10 yeah. plus. And I just find it interesting how we were able to survive here following natural law for thousands and thousands of years. And the non-indigenous community who's colonized is like, oh, how do we tackle climate change? Yeah. And just completely erasing the like thousands of years of evidence that indigenous people were surviving just fine following that natural law and using just as North America as an example of yeah. how we were able to coexist and have treaties that overlapped not just with each other as nations but overlapped with the animals and um and the land yeah yeah i think you know interconnectedness the ability to connect as as a tribe as a people mm. is all a part of natural law i think you know Ooh. we might not have had the language of shame and guilt but the understanding that you know we worked better as as a collective mm. that you know like our economic system or our resources were taken care of because we were in this co collective mm -hmm. but not only that but our sense of you know 
necessary need to connect with other people, our necessary need to have relationships was mm. also very much fulfilled. Something that's not very covered in, you know, free market capitalist society. Um, and even for our health, that our health was very much, uh, you know, taken care of by the community as well. Mm. Only recently have we started considering like universal health care. <laughs> and like even the states are struggling <laughs> with that in itself. Yep. We talk in a lot of my research, I talk about the three human threats, mm. um, health, economics, and interpersonal, mm. and how, you know, since all the way to Adam Smith, it was always like, oh, just fulfill your economic need and then the rest will come. <laughs> um, and how that's, you know, just not helping and it hasn't really been working out um, where it's not just indigenous people, but now we're seeing that, you know, the more wealthier we're becoming as nations, um, the less friends we have, the more force space we have between each other. Yeah. That we would choose, we would choose, um, we would choose like items opposed from connection mm. and how as that's happening there is a greater national opioid addiction that's mm. happening in the country and that there's you know like again let's recognize that um for air quality it's past 10 mm. and like you were telling me I, like i don't even think the 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 scale goes as high as 10 we're gonna have to increase that scale higher yep um and the fact that you know what is that why is that happening Big part of it is because of global warming, because of plastics, because of, you know, the need to have things and the need to have um, to buy things and to, you know, like plastic is just so convenient and yep. um, that we would choose things and just consumption over and over again and thinking that would lead us to happiness when it clearly hasn't and it's actually destroying our planet. Yeah. And destroying our families that are going towards opioid addictions. It's no longer just indigenous people. It's everyone now. It is. And I think only when the skies are starting to get more and more smoky and it's not just indigenous people that are having the alcohol or the opioid addiction. Now it's the white people. Now the white people will care a little bit more about addressing these issues. Mm -hmm. But I think you can't um, address those issues without considering connection, mm -hmm. considering the human needs that people have inherently, which is connection, which is we need our resources. We need that ability to feel unrestricted in our sense of being able to have resources. That's important. Like have we, ha we can't be struggling to try to find food for our families. Right. We can't go about our life when we have chronic illnesses and can't afford, you know, medication. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, just like we know from this, uh, from my own research, that you need to have that relationship with yourself and that relationship with your family, your clan, and your community. Mm -hmm. um, that those things are very, those are things that are just as important as the economy. Mm -hmm. And that's something we're just not there yet. As we're nation. not measuring that social capital yeah. at all. No, no. And I think in order for us to succeed, we're going to have to. And yeah. I really, I, I talk about it with the UN Sustainable Development Goals. So mm -hmm. the, um, you'll see people talking about that. And I always laugh because if they would just implement the United Nations Declaration of Rights of Indigenous People, then actually we would fulfill those uh, sustainable development goals. But mm. it's that lack of wanting to give up power um, yeah. 
and seeing indigenous uh, ways of knowledge as a worthwhile investment, despite mm-hmm. the thousands of years of evidence that we did just fine yeah. without all of this consumption and capitalism. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, I totally agree. <laughs> yeah, did crazy. you want to talk about your other book at all? Uh, well, yeah, it's uh, just a textbook from one of my classes, and um, I wasn't too sure what we wanted to talk about, but uh, there's just a chapter here on indigenous uh governance so this book is called canadian federalism by Bakvis, i think it's b-a-k-v-i-s and skogstad it's the third edition it's a Knoxford textbook um and i just really liked their chapter on indigenous people and it talks about like how um we don't really have a clear uh we don't really have the clear legal language for the relationship between indigenous people and the crown mm. um, and how there's different ideas of how that could look, mm-hmm. uh, whether that's a third order of government or whether that's, um, you know, something completely different, you know, this idea of nation to nation and what that looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, and that what we know from the Calder case I can't remember when the Calder case was it's in this textbook, but uh, how it gave the opportunity. It was 1973, the Calder case, where the Supreme Court recognized for the first time the possibility that an Aboriginal title resulting from prior occupation to, of the land could have legal force in contemporary Canada. So basically, it was reaffirming. Um, the Aboriginal Treaty Rights in Section 35. Mm -hmm. Um, And it basically said that as the court system, we will say that Indigenous people have these rights. The relationship between Indigenous people and the Crown is just not clear. And Mm -hmm. they said, we're not going to determine that relationship. Mm -hmm. That has to happen between the First Nations people and the Crown. Wow. And so I had this really interesting conversation with my colleague today, uh, while we're working on Otapiaki stuff and research, and that's what I love about my job and working with <laughs> our research, student researchers is that sure. you're able, and indigenous student researchers is yeah. that we're able to have these conversations and you know empathize with it based on our own communities and our own backgrounds uh, being indigenous. Um, and something I was kind of thinking, kind of something that kind of goes back to my own research about um, social capital and that. Indigenous people don't have that ability to really invest in social capital because of this trauma in Indigenous communities. How it's really created this civil disorder where Mm. um, we're just not empowered as a community. I almost kind of think of it as the Indigenous people right now, because of that trauma, are in a type of coma Mm. because of the addiction, suicides, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, bullying, lateral violence, this uh these in-group fightings that happen in community that it's it's almost kind of it is kind of like a post-apocalypse for indigenous people right now Mm -hmm. that we are still trying to recuperate from this from uh the effects of historical trauma Mm -hmm. um that we are kind of in this coma that we can't you know and someone that's in a coma they can't really make these kind of decisions about our relation, our relationship with the crown. I think that, you know, indigenous people, um, just like we, I think that we should not have those conversations about 
our relationship with the crown until our people are not, you know, healed, because that's a very subjective term, but are that the trust within indigenous communities within themselves and with their families and with their communities, once those have healed and be and have increased better and you know, indigenous people are able to trust one another and develop like companies and are able to make their own self-determination and create their own wealth, mm-hmm. which is a big part of what Odapiaki is about, is trying to help indigenous people find their own wealth. Mm-hmm. Um, until we get to that point, like we can't be making decisions about what, uh, where the relationship is going to go towards um, indig- with indigenous people and the crown. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. No, that totally makes sense to me. I, uh, you know, I have a really unpopular opinion that I talk about regularly, but um, I know a lot of people probably don't like it, and especially the, the Liberal Party and the and the government. But it, it's not a Liberal Party problem; it's a Canadian government not understanding Indigenous issues. And I mm-hmm. regularly say that um, you know any of these motions of understanding. Um, or the MOUs, I'm not 100% sure what it um, stands for, but bottom line is is that any of these contracts are being made under duress because if we are forced mm. to live under the Indian Act, we're confined to certain areas, we're not allowed to you know, hunt fish the way we would normally do, our water is poisoned. I mean, the fundamental issue of health is clean drinking water, which we actually don't have yeah. uh, universally across the nation. You know, um, really, we're under duress. Yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, we talked actually today at the Awutan summary uh, conversation uh, how um, colonialism is ongoing. Yeah. And uh, just finding the words and starting to put that into reports and their processes and their theory of change models. And sadly, that hasn't really been done. Yeah. And, you know, well, it's he, hard. It's yeah. very complex. Our issues are multidisciplinary and you know it's i like to say our issue the issues in indigenous communities are psych psycho socio-cultural so that includes you know work from policymakers to like theories of what sociology says about how humans work in collectives and communities Mm. and how you know and our psychology like our sense of you know whatever um, neuroses we have and how that does connect to our ability to connect in a socio kind of environment and how that affects our culture as a community mm. and how you know it's really hard to just write up a report and then try and do a theory of change on something mm. like that where my research I'm really like proud to have chosen my degree which is Bachelor of Arts of Policy Studies which will be done in a couple of years from now because I find it's very um, you know, I think it's it's very much about like human nature, like policy, like economics. You can look at political science and economics, but what policy studies does is kind of looks at like okay, but we have to think of this applied mm. in an applied context to the human nature, to the humans that it's actually going to be influencing and affecting. Mm. And we, you know, it's just it's really hard to to expect like. Let's hire an indigenous person and just do a report, and that'll be our theory of change. It's it's complex. It is. It's multidisciplinary. Um, Awutan, uh, Nicole, who's doing this work, 
she said that um, they actually had to delay the information and such over a year because at the end of the day, our ways and encapsulating that in models and doing it respectfully with cultural sensitivity, making sure you basically get permission from a lot of the elders and folks that are at, in these tables. Prior to this, our you know circles weren't really working within the colonial models of evidence. Mm-hmm. And uh, so basically she was adapting a lot of this to make it work within the new, within Western systems. And uh, I was really taken aback at how thorough it was. Mm-hmm. So that's of course why I keep plugging this report that's going to be coming out in a month in the hope yeah. that we all kind of dissect it and go through it. And I think you and I should dissect it just simply based off of the uh, incredible work that you do on um, systems and structures and decolonization. And maybe we could have Nicole on here and have you two chat about it. I don't know what that mm, could look like, yeah. but uh, just super um, amazing point in time where Indigenous are not only finding their voices, but also changing um, the academic senses through Western models and that because we have to have that inclusion now mm-hmm. and because we can identify human rights atrocities and, and say that, you know, these systems are exclusionary to indigenous ways, indigenous knowledge. Um, and so we have to change the models. Like this is a big shift in, in our world. Yeah. And I, I don't, I'm really honored to witness, you know, you and so many others that are going through university yeah. doing this amazing work. Nicole's one of them working on her, um, you know, degree as well. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I also think, too, there's a time for asking and, like, permission and things like that. I find for me, like, you know, I do have elders. I, like, the person that gave me my name, you know, my grandparents. Um, I'm very privileged to be able to be in a family that's very connected to their cult, to the culture mm-hmm. and to protocol. So I feel like I, I have a lot of that in growing up. Mm-hmm. Um, a big part of me, though, thinks about how much of an urgency there is in Indigenous communities and mm. how, like, I think a lot of, you know, arguments, like academic arguments and like, you know, did you consider this and this and this? Or like, I've even had people not towards me and my work. I'm, you know, I'm waiting for that to happen, actually. But I've seen you know a lot of Indigenous people that say, I won't look at your work if it's not done by an indigenous, if it's like the work that you're citing doesn't come directly from an indigenous person. Mm. This idea that our nations are good enough and that we don't need the help of like, you know, people across the seas or whatever, mm. you know, Nobel Peace Prize winners have found because our nations are enough. And I think that for me, uh, first of all, my argument is like that's not how indigenous, that's not how Blackfoot people are. Mm. We are extremely innovative people. Like my auntie introduced me to this one thing where she said, when the horse came in, you know, our people examined it and seen whether or not it was good for the people. And they said it did. It improved, it increased the sizes of our teepees. Mm. It allowed us to carry more from camp to camp. Mm. and we said that it looked like um, a dog and an elk. So we called it bono, bono, bono imita, something like that, where it's like dog elk. <laughs> so, you know, that was a new thing that came into Indigenous communities, and we seen it was good for the people, and it became a part of the culture. And that's the same thing with the buffalo jump. Like, 
Blackfoot people and indigenous people are adaptive people. And I think that, you know, for me and my job is to look at this, you know, research and to look at the urgency within indigenous communities. We can't, mm. we can't, like, I feel like there's a point where, you know, being too careful is harmful. Yeah, yeah. And I think that, you know, the work I am doing is I'm trying to say this looks good to me. I, I'm an, I'm a survivor of this intergenerational trauma. Yeah. My father was in the 60s group. My mom was in day school. Mm. All my grandparents have struggled with addictions. Mm. Some of them have passed on earlier and I never got to meet them because of their struggle with addiction. Mm. Like I know the trauma of indigenous people. I've experienced it mm. and I've been in these homes and I've seen what's happened to my peers mm. and how, you know, I've lost people from suicide and from you know, like my neighbor was uh, Colton Crowshoe and like how, you know, like I'm, I know the urgency of, of what indigenous people are going through. And so there's that thing I just wanted to point out is like, you know, too, being too cautious, mm. I think has probably even has harmed indigenous people because yep. we haven't made, um, you know, we don't have that courage because we're like, oh, I, I don't want to step on toes or something like that. Well, you know what? If I step on your toe, yep. tell me what literature I'm missing. Yep. Tell me where, where you know, you don't agree with something mm. instead of just completely dismissing my work. Yeah. And so I haven't, I've, you know, thankfully I haven't run into anyone that said like your work is like, you know, it's not indigenous or it's not, you know, like it's too, colon it's colonized academia and um you know i'm waiting for that because i could say like you know look at my work yeah and tell me where it doesn't seem right mm. and what other literature maybe there is some indigenous person that has written something that's a bit more uh that connects more mm -hmm. and has that indigenous experience but we need to have real solutions we need to have part of my job is to consider policy options mm. policy studies is all about research analysis and providing options mm. um, and that's what I'm doing mm -hmm. I'm, I'm examining the research I'm trying to see what will work and what kind of options we can offer towards you know addressing some of these issues when you feel attacked by other academics I hope um, I hope you remember to reach out because uh, even Nicole talked a bit about it today. And I, I know mm -hmm. that there's a culture and a community of healthy people that would want to support you through that mm -hmm. when and if it happens. And, um, you know, even today with uh, Tina Keeper, I kind of touched on some identity politic issues. And I won't get into it because I don't really have permission to speak about it publicly. But at the end of the day, that lateral violence is something that we want to start addressing. Yeah. And um, I know uh, Ruth Scalplock talked about a conference that she's going to start organizing um, that's going to be talking a lot about uh, the different violences, in, including lateral violence. So I just, I know that this is coming and I just yeah. hope you know that like me, I love you to pieces and I know that there's a community that we can throw you into. Mm -hmm. I'm sure your people that you're already surrounded by in Mount Royal would help you with that too. So I just um, hope you know how I think what you're doing is an, is so important. And just hearing Nicole's words today about how 
and and seeing her empowerment and and confidence in the way f- that she laughed off a lot of the lateral violence like it she she really came from it in such a good way yeah. and that's why i bring it up because i know you have people who will understand exactly what you're going through yeah. um when i graduated high school in 94 mm-hmm. we didn't even have like aniskim centers yeah. or native centers so i didn't even have an opportunity to really access a lot of um, issues and because I was raised in a white community um, I talked to my guidance counselor for three years over okay how do we make this Indian status work so that I can go to university and she never was able to help me with that and uh, the other alternative was my my family was not supportive of me ever going down my indigenous roots and that's both native and Mm non-native and um I was encouraged to go to university in Texas, which I didn't want to do. Mm. So um, they wanted me to lose my husband in order to do that. So, yeah, so I, you know, didn't have a lot of options. So my husband and I uh, moved to Calgary and I went to state just nighttime drafting courses. Mm. So, um, you know, and I just did what I could in order to be able to get work in the industry. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I just know it's such a different time. And the irony being both my aunts and uncle, like, went to, became an engineer, became a lawyer. And yet I, I just didn't know how to navigate the process. And yeah. there was so much trauma at that point. I didn't really know how to reach to them for help or yeah. anything. So, yeah, it's, uh, I'm just really proud of your generation and everything that you're going through. And, uh, the last thing I want you to feel is sup- like a lack of support when that st- kind of stuff happens. Yeah. Even on Twitter, I've found that to be really empowering at times. At times, it's incredibly toxic and yeah. um, divisive, especially with the identity politics. I have one of the most you know prominent people say, oh, block Michelle Robinson. She's problematic, yeah. right? Like yeah. that. that's happened to me many times on native Twitter. But um you know, that bigger picture was that I had seen um, people in the academic sense calling out, you know, white community actually for trying to dissect their indigenous perspective. Mm. So I seen a lot of that on Twitter and I learned a lot from that. So I just yeah. know that there will be a good community for you. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I'm, I'm glad. Yeah. I'm glad we've progressed there that yeah. you can have a community of you know, peers, colleagues, academics that mm-hmm. respect you and your um, your ways of knowing. Well, honestly, I in that sense, you know, I am like just because of the time period I am, I am definitely privileged to have that. And it's it's incredible that I'm getting close to finishing my paper. I've kind of like finished my conclusion. I'm just finishing citing. Um, and I, I actually like my first iteration of it. I took to Germany to a international um, social innovation conference and in my stream i won uh i won an award like best paper amazing in front of like it was kind of it was, i was kind of like shocked because there's all these phds but like over at the university i do have you know like my co-founder who is a professor patty derbyshire who's just incredible and such an incredible ally and who i who i kind of use as a framework for what an ally is someone that you know uses their power to empower others and to give that space so not that you know so giving that space so that i can do this work yeah right otherwise i'd be doing this free or on my own right yeah um while doing some sort of like side job over at like mcdonald's or something that i have this opportunity to be a researcher and to do this incredible work 
and that there are researchers and and professors that I've been able to talk to and talk to them about my work um, and where they're like, I want to read it. Like, I want to read your paper. I want to, mm-hmm. like, help you, like, make this paper successful. And, um, yeah, so I feel like I'm definitely privileged in that sense where I have that support. I'm, you know, and I'm almost kind of excited. I'm almost excited. And I feel like I've learned enough of my research as well that, like, if someone does, if someone's, like, that critical about something, about my paper my paper alone mostly that I think that I'm because my values are about the indigenous community and trying to like address these issues. It's not an ego thing. It has nothing to do with me. So it's like, if you have a criticism, let's talk it out. Like let me hear what you have to say. Um, That will help us go into a direction that where we can have real, um, you know, solutions for indigenous problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of my solutions in my paper I talk about is perpetuating cultures of empathy. Mm-hmm. So, like, there's huge, um, huge uh, statistics that talks about how if you introduce an indigenous person who has had problems with, like, you know, the law mm-hmm. or has been in abusive re- or has perpetuated abusive relationships in their own relationship, mm-hmm. um, like domestic violence or people that are struggling with, you know, depression, like indigenous people, mm-hmm. that if you introduce them to their culture, they tend to become like non-repeat offenders. They tend to mm-hmm. become like more resilient. I think Elizabeth Fry has um, research to back that because it, it's a ridiculous number, yeah. like 98% or something. Um, yeah. Once you have that cultural connection. And I mean, even for me, mm-hmm. when I understood we weren't inferior people, yeah. but they were trying so hard with propaganda to make us look that way. Yeah. But we had survived so many traumas. I just got so much empowerment from the inside. Right. Mm-hmm. So if we can replicate that at all and give that to any child that's been scooped from the child welfare system. Uh, any woman who's been, you know, misabused by yeah. the whole intergenerational trauma and, and where she's at, like yeah. we could, well, we, we are powerful. We are going to yeah. continue to get stronger. And I think, you know, when you're in those, like for me, I've heard that research. For me, it was like, okay, hey, what is, what is it about? Like I've been to ceremonies all my life and sometimes <laughs> it kind of feels like church when I'm just like, okay, <laughs> open the bundle. I want to go play my video games, right? <laughs> Um, <laughs> that sounds really bad, but like, you know, no, growing but up, it's regular yeah. and normal and that's yeah. okay. Yeah. But like, for me, it was like, what, like I do struggle with issues. What could I be doing to maximize the outcome of ceremonies? Like that kind of sounds like colonial economic language, but it's also like a, a question for, you know, what, you know, we could put indigenous people in these ceremonies, but like, how can we ensure that where maximizing its effect where we can make sure that you know there's some ceremonies that i've been to ceremonies that are just where it's like you have to participate but you have to pay and like you know where where is that healing coming from Mm. and how do we ensure that people have those tools to do that and for me that's why i say cultures that perpetuate empathy because shame and this idea that we're unworthy because that's really what shame is about it's this scarcity language that we build these walls 
and that's what um Sabadu and North Pagan were talking about in their language in their research about trusts on reserves. Mm. Um how indigenous people have built walls as part of as because of residential school that you know and then we we traumatize our children or our children are traumatized because of this lack of trust in the community and so they build walls and how empathy is the process of trying to um trying to tell your story and have someone receive that authentically mm-hmm. instead of saying like you know you share your story with me and i'm like that sucks or if that's you know <laughs> that doesn't that doesn't feel good right yeah or if it's like you share your story and i'm like oh that you know i like what Brene brown uh Brene brown uh how she put it she was like oh i am so sorry you experienced that like very robotic <laughs> and it's like this is how you empathize and the way Brene brown said it was she was like you know if you had told me that um you know, you got your door, you got door slammed in your face while you were like out campaigning. Like, it's very different from those responses to saying, like, shit, I hate when that happens. Or, like, I know how that feels. Or, like, that, that feeling where you're reciprocating that emotion. Mm. And that happens in cultures that perpetuate empathy. So, when I've gone to ceremonies, it's very different when, you know, you sit there and people are like, hey, like we're gonna do prayers if you have something you want to be prayed about like tell it like share it and i've heard people say you know i'm i'm still looking for my daughter Mm -hmm. and people and two other people are like yes i'm going through the same situation Mm -hmm. like to be able to say like you're not alone in this like we but that's so hard to do in indigenous communities outside of ceremony. Yes. Where in ceremony, it's built to empathize. Mm-hmm. Where it's 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 built so that you can feel safe, that you can share this, because that's the time to do it. Mm-hmm. If you feel unsafe everywhere else on the reserve, but ceremony is the one space where you can say, "I'm in, I'm dealing with addictions. Mm-hmm. I you know I'm in a domestic like I'm trying to fix my relationship, but." It just won't get better. Mm. Or I struggle with like anger and I need a creator to help me with my anger. Mm. Um, And to have people say, that's valid. Like, we will pray for you. Mm. That we will. And for a lot of people say like, yes, I experienced that same thing. Um, Those are incredible experiences. That's it's that is what I believe true healing is, is to be able to share your story and to have it be received authentically. And I think that process helps us bring down our walls. And I think when we have a better relationship with ourselves, we're more likelier to take risks, right? Suddenly we're seeing the wealth, the worth inside ourselves. Yeah. Because suddenly I'm not alone. Yeah. Kind of that critical awareness idea I was talking about earlier. Suddenly I'm not alone and I can... Um, you know, I can do these things. I'm not alone. I'm not broken. Um, and you know, I can go and start my own business. It's about trying to create that resiliency. And I really think cultures that perpetuate empathy are, are the key. Yeah. Are like, if you're, it's hard to like figure out policy when policy is about like programming and funding. Mm-hmm. Um, but it needs to have the correct language. For me, that's the language, is perpetuating 
is cultures that perpetuate empathy. You can have that at even, you know, church, like for white folks that are struggling with addictions. Mm-hmm. Um, like I can only really speak as a person, a queer person of color. Like for me, it's really important to be able to be a part of Hillhurst church because I grew up, my, my dad was a pastor. Mm. And so Christianity has always been a part of me. Um, and to go to Hillhurst United Church and to be able to say, like to be around other queer Christians and say, you know, this is my story. Mm-hmm. This is my shame story about um, being queer and in the Christian community and how, you know, this community has really let me down in a lot of ways and has really harmed me in a lot of ways. And have other people say, like recognize that and say that's like, say, yeah, I've experienced that too. Mm-hmm. Like you're not alone in experiencing that. Like that is healing. And oh. that is part of the answer for indigenous people i think well and i try to follow that exact conversation um pam rocker is somebody i i follow because she does that affirming work Mm. um in my family Mm. you know being catholic is kind of the assumption that you need to be and a few of my uncles and aunts have said it's not for me and and it really breaks the heart of those who are truly you know indian residential school spiritually believe that if they don't you know stay in a marriage their entire existence that they are going to hell and that by me not being catholic that they default go to hell as well and and this the spiritual abuse that they have in their own prison mind their um belief system and i just i just not only want to free them from that yeah. pain and that guilt, but I also want uh, those who identify as transgender in our family to not be shamed for who they are. I want them to feel healing and yeah. I want our family to move forward in a really positive way without the trauma of Indian residential school. Well, you know, I think spirituality can, it's such a powerful tool for connecting and that powerful tool for connecting can also be abused. Yes. And it can be used to cause harm. And I think like when it starts to become when it becomes more dogmatic and it's like you're not a part of our group if you're a divorcee or if you're a queer person or if you're whatever yep. or a trans uh, person, I feel like that almost bridges on the gap. Well, it's first of all, it's abuse. Totally. And the other thing is that it, I feel like it almost starts to become more cultish. Yes. And like I think spirituality is you know it's about it's about having a culture with yourself where you you see yourself as worthy and as as you know like a big part of what you you know you look at all these spiritualities and all these faiths and it's all about like this creator that loves you that created everything perfectly mm. like even in new age i was talking to my coworker about this even in new age spirituality where it says like everything just is like we assign worth to it based on our own measuring tools in our brain. Mm. Um, so how could we be worthless if everything just is? Mm-hmm. Or if everything is perfect, but we see ourselves as not perfect, like that doesn't make sense. So spirituality is supposed to change how you view, how you know your relationship and your culture with yourself. And when you, as a pastor, as a spiritual leader, mm. use that to say, if you're not following my rules, then you are unworthy. That is manipulation. That's abuse. Yeah. And, you know, it's not what I think, it's not what spirituality and faith is supposed to be about. It's supposed to be about finding that. I always say that spirituality is about having 
like this higher this higher power that you know that created everything and loves you and having like for my grandma she went to aa mm. and she developed that understanding like you know there's a higher power that's always there for myself so mm-hmm. how can you hate yourself when there's you know something that's all loving mm-hmm. uh, loves you like it changes your relationship with yourself that's one part of it i think and then the other part of spirituality is to be able to connect with people mm-hmm. and to have that you know one thing i like about church is that it really humanizes um strangers like to be able to go and shake hands with a stranger and say you know um peace be with you mm. right like it's like shaking the hand because you know that person you're shaking your hands with shaking hands with that could be the stranger across the street and that can be you know that can be the homeless person mm. outside of walmart mm-hmm. trying to ask for change and it humanizes people and it makes you see them as human and it helps that connection because if you live in a world where you think everyone is out to get you or you think everyone mm. like everyone's bad and you got to you got to be careful like constantly watching your back i know for uh, women it's that case for a lot of the times but i think that you know we need to humanize each other as people and we need to see that ability that we can connect with one another Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's really I think it's really dangerous with a lot of activist groups um, where I feel like they're almost in they're almost going into the realm of how white supremacists work where it's very othering where it's like white people are the enemy and they're all these different things like yeah white people are not going to be able to empathize with us for a lot of issues like missing and murder indigenous women and girls or um, you know mistrust in society or in our communities like there's a lot of things we can't we can't uh, empathize with each other, but it's it's dangerous when we start to dehumanize each other. Right. Like, it's horrifying because that's what happened in Germany. That's yeah. what happened when the first colonizers came here. Yep. And when they colonized North America and Africa. Yeah. Like, they dehumanized us. And that process of getting to that point where I can see you as less than human. Yeah. Because one thing that Brene Brown said was really amazing was that, you know, we are built for connecting with each other. It's yeah. a part of our nature. So I have to do a lot of work to view you as less than human. Oh, you know, I uh, think of our ancestors. So I'm a daughter of a Mayflower, mm-hmm. and I've really had to try to make peace with that. And I think what mm-hmm. what I was taught was that our ancestors that first seen the first newcomers yeah. welcomed everybody because they didn't see ownership of the land. Yeah. They seen it as, oh, here is a human who's struggling, because they've been on a long journey and we have to help them. Yeah. And I, I always that think that was natural. That was just so natural. Yeah. Even though they may have brought diseases and, you know, it, regardless, it was still, we have to help these people. Yeah. And um, I'm really, you know, I always try to think back to that. If they could be brave enough to do that in my colonized mind, I got to start being brave enough to put myself in front of. And I did a couple in the last little uh, couple of weeks here of, being in front of crowds of non-Indigenous who did not want to hear my message, but were kind of forced to by their organization. Yeah. And um, and I, I always think, you know, the side looks, the rolling eyes, the not paying attention, all of those microaggressions that we all experience every single um, time, I always think still better than catching smallpox still yeah. better than having yeah. an rcmp throw me onto a reserve still better than having an rcmp throw me into a um, indian residential school still better than a cop coming and getting me to 
throw me and take me into the child welfare system. You know, like I I can do this because all of those other sacrifices were made for me to be here today. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, I guess with that, we have dealt with so much and I want to keep talking all night, but I just want to say thank you so much for sharing all of the wonderful work that you're doing and all the research you're doing in school. And I'm just really honored to know you and have you in my life and in my circle. And I just hope that, uh, you know, being on my podcast is something I just want to get that, you know, moment in time. This was spirit when he was going to (laughs) school, you know, and just before the release of the national inquiry, you know, it's just, it's a moment in time. And I, I love that we can do this now. And, Mm -hmm. and, you know, I hear people tell me on the street when they listen to my show and they really appreciate it. And it's always when I have a guest, so I know, I hope people come up to you and say, hey, I heard you on Native yeah, Calgarian. Yeah. That's, uh, that'd be pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. So if you see Spirit, please go tell him. And especially if you go to the fashion <laughs> show or you do, you see that yeah. in Mount Royal. It's just, in November. Yeah. Yeah. Do the plug if you yeah. need to ever. Yeah. com. It's going to be in November. We're doing our call out for indigenous designers now. Mm. It'll go on. We're actually not officially releasing it because of the inquiry, so we're waiting till about July or June eighth, uh, I think it is, and then we're gonna do like an official call out. Um, but the application is online, and any Indigenous designer that wants to apply, um, our jury is going to be uh, members of the community, including. Michelle Robinson here will be on that selection committee as well. So thank you for including me in yeah. that too. I appreciate yeah. it. And I hope to read my paper too. I want to read your yeah. paper, and yeah. I know um, a lot of the folks in my liberal circles will probably want to read your paper. Yeah, I, um, I had a friend of mine who um, he actually he did his doctorate, and then mm. when he got really dissected by someone non-indigenous mm. and said he wasn't, you know, indigenous feminist enough, and oh, wow. it, it was it, it was the most awful thing that I felt awful for him because you know, he was the one who introduced me to our mutual friend who is like the leading indigenous feminist there is, you know, talks about sex work, all those things. Oh, quick shout out on Sunday is International Day of the Sex Worker and RuPaul is coming tomorrow. So I tweeted out to RuPaul, RuPaul, just in case your flight doesn't leave right away, (laughs) this event is happening. So... Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, with that, I say Masi Cho for coming on to Native Calgarian. Thank you very much.